All right, two other things I, I'd like to mention. Uh, from time to time in, in our church, we get people asking about jobs and different things like that. So I, I, we're kind of saying if you know of jobs that are available or someone who's hiring, if you would let us know, it helps us help other people with those types of things. Uh, we would appreciate that. Secondly, um, we have over the years uh, helped a number of people who, who are homeless, and one of them is Dale. Dale uh, was homeless now. He's in a house, and, and things are getting more settled, but Dale needs a ride to church. He lives in the Hilton area. If you'd be interested in, in, in helping out with that, um, you can see me, and we'll let you know everything that's involved, and, and uh, we would love to try to to make that happen as much as possible. All right, we are uh, going to start back up in our First John series. We we stopped First John last year, and now we're back to it this year. And and uh, we're going to be in First John chapter three, verses one through three. Now, last time when I spoke, we were on these, but we kind of touched on them from one angle. I want to come at it from a different angle and really focus on verse three. So let me read verses one through three for you. In 1 John chapter 3, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. All who have this hope in Him purify themselves just as he is pure. So we're going we're gonna to look at some things that we've, we've talked about before the, 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 in these first couple of verses, but I want to f- really bring it down and get some focus and some imp- implications out of verse 3. So we're going to jump on verse 1 real quick and just say one or two quick things about it because we've already gone over it. But again, verse 1, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. So John is saying, look, and, and, and I miss this a little, Lord. he's saying, examine this closely. This word, see, it has this idea that you're looking at something and you're thinking through, what, what are the implications? What does this mean? What does this mean to me in my life? How does this practically work out in my life? Because this is a treasure, he's saying. It's beyond imagining. It's a great love. It's a lavished love. And, and the word the translators are trying to express here, I brought this up before, but I, is a really cool word. Potipen is the word. And it has this idea of, of something that is foreign to us, something that's not in our realm of experience, something that is otherworldly. It's, it's, it's from out of this world, in a sense. And what is he saying? There is a love that has been lavished on us that we have not, we can't, we haven't experienced it. We haven't grasped it. We get tastes of it, but we don't really know what, and he says, that's the love. It's otherworldly love. It's totally beyond, and, and it, it is a great love that is not something we have in ourselves, that we have not earned in any way. It has totally been gifted to us so that it is lavish, and it is extravagant, and it is reckless, and it is unfathomable. It has adopted us so that now we are his children. You think about that. He has adopted you because of his great love for you. Now, when I came to know Jesus Christ, I, I mentioned this, I was not raised in a family that was Christian. No one in my family were Christians, and this stuff was totally foreign. And, and I can remember one of the times hearing and thinking through becoming a Christian 
and thinking, uh, my older brother had kind of explained it to me, that, that God wanted to, in a sense, adopt me. And I remember thinking, I don't even like me. Why would he want to adopt me? This is crazy. This is not, this is so weird that God would love me so much that he would want me because I know me. And I'm an idiot. You know, I'm just a bum. And, and, and what, what happened was it hit me. This is what John's saying. This is an otherworldly love because it doesn't make sense. Why would God want to adopt failures? That's not how adoption worked back then. Adoption, especially in those days, was very much you were looking for somebody who was extremely successful and smart and educated, and you would adopt that person. That's how it worked in those days. So why would God want me? And it, it is this lavish, extravagant love that he has adopted us now. So we know that we are his children. I know who I am. Now that's pretty key. I know who I am. I am a child of God. That's an that's a important thing. All right. So we had the wonder of his love. Now I want you to see in verse 2 the power of our destiny. See, because I know who I am. Now, where am I going? What's going to happen to me? What's next? What's, what's, what is going to happen in the long run for my life? And he says in verse 2, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Okay, This is when I wanted to put up a picture of Darth Vader. Darth Vader, right? You go, Luke, this is your destiny. Because this is destiny talk right here. This is, your, this is destiny talk. We're children of God. Our life and our future, our destiny is tied up in the fact that we are his children. We are not just his friends. We are not just servants. We're not pets. We are his children. He will bring us home. And you know, it's that age-old question, what will, what will that home be like? What will heaven be like? What will I be like when I get to heaven? And he's saying, okay, that hasn't all been revealed. Just one part has been revealed. We will be like him. Our body will be transformed. Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 3. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Now, I'm getting older, and things are breaking on me that didn't used to break. Things are not getting better as quickly as they used to get better. You know, all these things... I'm looking forward to this new body. I'm starting to go, yeah, this is sounding better and better. The older I get, our body will be transformed. We'll be like him. Well, well the only, only glimpses we get of that is Jesus after his resurrection. And I personally am looking forward to walking through a wall. There's two things. I'm looking forward to walking through a wall, and I'm looking forward to being able to dunk a basketball. That's what I'm looking forward to. Those two. Yeah, I've really set my goals high, right? Yeah, you're like, dude, you're strange. Yes, I agree. That, that's it. I am. But our body will be transformed. Now, I put on here in this the, the power of our destiny. And you think, now, what, what is the power that comes from knowing your... What, how is there power in knowing your destiny? Well, let me give you a little illustration. I think I've used it before. Let me give you a little illustration. You know, uh, say in an assembly line 
uh, a plant here, maybe in Hampton or wherever, and, and you get hired there, right? You and another guy get hired, and the other guy gets hired first, and they tell him, you know, you're going to be working at this part of the assembly line. You know, you need to just get through it. It's a very boring and tedious work, you know, but we're going to pay you, whatever, 15, 18 bucks an hour to do this. Okay. And then you walk through, and they go, look, we've been playing this for a while, but you're actually, over the long years of our company, you're the 50,000th employee. So, Work hard today. At the end of the day, we're going to have a celebration. You're going to get a check for 25 grand because you're the 50,000th employee. So you're going to go work on the assembly line next to that guy. We appreciate it if you wouldn't tell anybody, but just go put in a good day's work and there'll be a big party afterwards. Your destiny, knowing what's coming, affects how you live now. Because you think of that first guy, it gets real tedious. And after a while, he's like, man, $15 an hour, I don't know if this is worth it. Because this is just so numbing, mind-numbing. And the foreman is such a jerk. He keeps coming over and yelling at us for going too slow. I may quit. I may just quit. I may just walk off the line right now. Right? He's, that's how he's reacting to, what about you next to him? knowing there's a $25,000 check come at the end of the day. <laughs> I don't care if I'm mind-numbing. I don't care. You know, the, the, the foreman comes over and starts yelling at you and like, oh, yeah, you know, you may be right about that. I don't, you know my mother. How did you, I didn't even know you knew my mother. Da, 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 you know, and you would just, why? Why, you would just, because your destiny is influencing how you live right now. You'd be going, <laughs> I don't care what you say. 25 grand, 25 grand, 25 grand. You know, you would just be putting little widgets together as, Happy as a clam. Why? Because your destiny influences how you live now. What is coming changes how you live now. If you think it through and you understand it. Now, if you're in the middle of going, wait a minute. What if this is a big joke? What if I'm... Now, suddenly, it's changed. Why? Because your your destiny has fallen. You got to understand what John is saying here. He's saying there's two important things going on here right now. First of all is the wonder of his love. It's it's an amazing love. It's an incredible love that he loves you with. Second of all, your destiny, what is going to happen to you now and in the future should influence how you live now. And he's saying this is how it works. So that takes us to the third point, and we're going to spend some time here. The wonder of his love, the power of our destiny, and finally the application for purity. And that's from verse 3. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Now, I want to say something right here. I want to just, just lay it out beyond it. This verse really makes me uncomfortable. Okay? Because it comes, it comes to something that I struggle with. All right? How are we supposed to live the Christian life? You know, we hear these things like, I'm supposed to be, I I need to work hard at the Christian life. And then we hear, yeah, but God is the one who's willing and working his plan in you. How do I, how do I bring those two thoughts together? I'm working hard, but God is working. Trust him. How do I bring those things together? Because I know these two things. Scripture tells me this. Scripture tells me that I can't do it. John 15, 5, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And I fully agree with that. I've tried and failed so many times. I've tried so many times on my own power to try to live out this Christian life. It's impossible. It's impossible. 
I, I, I remember reading this, and I, I mentioned it before, reading a, a, a book by a, a kind of a more liberal theologian, and he was just, he was reinterpreting the Sermon on the Mount, basically, because his point was to live the ser- Sermon on the Mount is impossible. You have to have supernatural power to live the Sermon on the Mount. So therefore, his thought was, Jesus must not have meant what it seems like he meant. And so he was reinterpreting it to make it something that I could, could be more livable. So he was saying, you know, when he says don't lust, he's saying try to avoid lust as much as possible. He would soften it. Why? Because it's impossible. And my whole point was, my whole thought was, no, dude, you got it right. It is impossible. It is impossible to live the Christian life. I cannot do it. You cannot do it. And Jesus tells us up front. I mean, John 15, 5, towards the beginning, he says, without me, you can do nothing. There's no way you can do it. So I know that's true, and experience tells me that. So how do we deal with this? And this is something that people have dealt with and wrestled with for years, and, and I'm not presuming that I'm like some great knowledge. I'm, you know, I'm pulling together stuff that I've read, but coming at how, this is how I'm looking at this. There's, there's two, basic, two basic ways people have looked at this problem. One is they teach some kind of a holy passivity. It, it, it has a name. It was called quietism. And, and, and there's been a couple of, of uh, and I'm not banging, I'm not, I'm not um, downing them, but that's kind of the background that Quakers came from, you know, and there was, this, there was this sense of there's no striving in this, there's no effort, just let go and let God. Have you heard that? I mean, there's some truth to that, but that became such a popular thing for people to say, which basically meant don't do anything, which basically made me feel good for not trying, you know. Let go and let God. Wait for God to give you the desire to do something. Just seeing that there's a need is not enough. Be passive and sit until God stirs you. God will will change you. God will change you just just by being open to him. You won't even struggle with these things. And, And this is a part of what was going on in John's day. This is something they were struggling with. There were people who were saying... We can't do anything, so we've got to let God do it. Don't worry about your sinful impulses. Don't try to fight them. That's just your evil body. God has redeemed your spirit, you know, and now you just got to let go, let God, just let him work. And so that if your body goes into some terrible things, into sexual immorality, or if your body, you know, decides to steal from another person, don't worry about it too much because that's that evil body of yours. But your spirit loves God. See how that opens his doors? I mean, I'm like, oh, that sounds so attractive. Yeah, it opens doors, but it's not very, because then it's just that your body runs riot. And there's some truth in there that has been twisted into a lie. So some people would come at it that way. It was called quietism. Some people come at it in a way that I would call moralism. And that is you take the morality in Scripture and you apply it rigorously to your life and you work, 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 and it's only through tremendous effort that you're going to change. You've got to be an extremely disciplined person. You tend to, get into, tend to get into shaming, shaming yourself for not living up to standards and shaming others when they don't live up to your standards. But there's a key in this verse, I think, that John says, this is going to unlock this verse. He says, all who have this hope in him purify themselves. So it's very key. So that points to all who have this hope, those are the ones who are purifying themselves. That goes back to verses 1 and 2. 
verse 1. We have this hope. We have this incredible love that God has loved us so much. And when you begin to understand the implications of that love, it gets more and more incredible and foreign and otherworldly. We have that. Secondly, we know what our destiny is. We know where we're going. We know what God has in store for us. And he says, there's your hope. And as you focus on those hopes, you will be purified. That's how it happened. So purification flows out of truth. It's not merely a matter of self-effort. It is setting your heart on certain truths. All right? So I, I just put this up because this is, here's a principle. Purity grows out of the practical application of truth. God loves me. God loves me deeply. He loves me so much he sent his son to die for me. His son loves me so much that he willingly went to the cross. Even when he saw the full horror of the cross and wanted to back away, he said, nope, I'm doing God's will for the sake of Bob or you. That's how much God loves me. Okay, so if someone loves me that much, what are the implications of that in my life? What are the implications? Someone else says they don't love me. Someone else says something hurtful or harmful in my life. And I'm going, wow, you know, this, this, this person, this guy, this woman that I work with, you know, said something terrible to me. God says he loves me. He, he says I'm, I'm the most, I'm like the most valuable thing in the universe to him. Who am I going to listen to? This idiot? No. I'm going to listen to God because he's God. And if he says this is true, I'm going to take it, <clears throat> and I'm going to run with it. So what happens? Now, I don't react to this person so strongly, because they have no power over me. And so purity grows out of the practical application of truth. I know my destiny. I know what God's going to do. I know that, that one day I'm going to be like Jesus. Right? So in the meantime... I experience a failure. Now that failure tells me that I'm a loser and I'm worthless. God tells me, no, no, you're going to be like my son. This is how important you are. This is, this, is, this is how much I value you. This is how successful you're going to be. Who am I going to listen to? A temporary setback or the God of the universe? Now, I know I've hit the nail on the head. Our problem is we listen to the idiots and the temporary setbacks. That's what we do instead of listening to God. But purity will grow out of the practical application of truth as we take the truth and apply it to our lives. As we focus on truth, and we've talked about that so much, and the reason we've talked about how we focus so much is because it's shot through Scripture all over the place. Every book of the Bible has verses on it that talk about the importance of focus in one way or another. So focusing on truth is key because doctrine always affects our practical life. When the scripture writers tell us, when they exhort us to do certain things, it's always based on some doctrine they've, they've explained. They just don't say, just say no. They don't say that. They say no, why? Because of this and this truth and this truth. Therefore, you are now empowered to say no. And our culture can often tell people what, that, that what they should be doing, but with no basis for it. I think, for instance, our culture values love very highly. Movies are all about love. Books, music, it's all about love. We hear about love and how important it is. But the problem is it's not defined or it's very poorly defined. 
And so there's no foundation for it. And so people fall in and out of love on the regular. I remember talking to somebody who said, why do you love her? Because she makes me feel good. And I'm like, what about one day when she doesn't make you feel good? What are you going to do then? I mean, is it over? Is it done? Because that's coming soon. You know? So what happens when she makes you feel bad? Or I say, why do you love him? He's always there for me. He lifts me up. He lifts me up like Michael Bublé or something, right? He, he lifts me up. I'm like, what, what about the time when he drops you? Because that's coming. That's coming. You know, sometimes people have kids, uh, babies here at the church. Um, I don't know, it's every, it happens everywhere, right? And, but uh, oftentimes what will happen, <laughs> I, I don't even know what I'm saying. And, and I know where I'm going, though. Um, and so people will say, Bob, you want to hold a new baby? And I was like, man, I played football when I was in middle school and high school, and I fumbled a lot. I, I just don't want to hold the baby, you know? I'm just not that good with that kind of stuff, because then it's like, oh, darn, you know, that kind of It's not good. <laughs> so, so what happens when, when she doesn't lift you up anymore? What happens when he's not there for you? What happens when he puts you down? Oh, we must be out of love. Why? Okay, Scripture tells us we're always told what to do, practical application of truth, because we're, giving a, we're given a truth that we live on. We're given doctrine that we live on. In our culture, the problem is we elevate love like it's the, you know, all we hear and all we, ah, oh, I love him, you know, that kind of thing. But, but we don't have the truth to base it. So love is something people jump in and out of, fall in and out of. They don't have a biblical idea of what love really is. Christianity never gives something practical to do without giving the foundational truth that backs it up, that's behind it. So when we're told we must forgive people, it's not like you must forgive people. It's the right thing to do. You must forgive people because it's bad for you not to. You must forgive people. It, okay, and those things are true. It is the right thing to do, and it is bad for you not to be a forgiving person. But the foundational truth behind forgiveness is that there is a judge, and it is not your job to be the judge, you are not qualified. And Christianity teaches about the righteousness of God. Christianity teaches about the judgment that God brings. It teaches the cross and salvation and how you and I have been forgiven at great cost. Therefore, forgive others. Do you see the difference? Therefore, forgive others. Why? Because I have a clear sense of what I have been forgiven, and it is incredible. And this person has hurt me, but it is really not huge. Forgive that person. Even if it is huge, forgive that person. Why? Because God says, I am the judge. There will be an accounting. There will be a day when everything will be made right. Trust me on that. You're not qualified to be the judge. And so you see, when we're told to forgive in Scripture, it's not just some pious platitude. It's, oh, it's a good thing. Go forgive. No. It's based on a foundational truth. So when the Bible talks about your attitude towards your in-laws or your attitude towards your roommate or your attitude towards people you work with, it's always in the context of there, there is a God who is a judge. Jesus bore your sins. God forgave you freely and fully. These are great, powerful truths. So now as you deal with that person that is giving you so much trouble, deal with that person in this light. 
So the scripture teaches, focus on the truth and then do what is, what is laid out in the context of the truth that's been laid out. This is why we need to read our Bibles. This is why, you know, you people talk about daily devotions and things like that. Because what it does is it puts us into the foundational truths that then give us the power that we need to live it out. Because our society in many ways can be totally irrational. Especially, I think, in areas concerning ethics and things like that. Biblical ethics, I feel like, is very rational. It's always grounded in the nature of God. It's always grounded in the nature of humanity. It's always grounded in light of eternity. Biblical ethics is grounded in these foundational truths. But you have many people today who will say, I don't believe in God, or or they, they act as if they don't believe in God. And so what they're saying is there's no transcending values. There's no truths for all people. So truth is relative to whatever your situation is or your feelings dictate. And then right and wrong becomes up to the individual. And each society comes up with their rules that are right and wrong. There's a famous anthropologist. I've read some of what she's written, and I can't pronounce her name very well. It's Carolyn Fleur Loban. It's a hyphenated type name, but she's an anthropologist. And so she talks about what is called cultural relativism. And, and that's a, long, uh, a key concept in anthropology. And it says that since each culture has its own values and practices, anthropologists should not make value judgment about cultural differences. All right? So what does that mean? So that means I go to another culture, right, where, where, where uh, uh, maybe, you know, uh, female mutilation is a part of that culture. I, I can't speak against that because that's their culture and they value that. Who am I? And, and she wrote, what authority do we Westerners have to impose our own concept of universal rights on the rest of humanity? What authority, and, and, and her point is, what authority do we have to say that human life is sacred? That's our culture. That's their culture. And it's very interesting, one of the articles, she, worked, she was working through the implications of this. And basically what she came to say was, she came to say is like, I don't care about cultural relativism. relativism. If something's wrong, it's wrong. And so she violates the foundation of, of what she studied and taught all her life. But she's working through that. And one of the things she says is she, she talked about a, a practice that's common in, in, used to be common in Japan and still is very common in, in India of when a man dies, the wife is killed. She's burned to death to join him in the afterlife to serve him, okay? So I'm not endorsing this in any way. Just want to head off those problems. So, so she said... How do we speak against that? Because that's very, that's very powerful in their culture. And she was saying, well, if the woman kills the children too, that's wrong. But if she decides to kill herself, we really can't take a stand against that. And I want to tell you, it, it, in India, it has declined significantly. It still is in some areas. But the reason it declined significantly was because of missionaries who stepped in and said, no, I don't care. No, it's wrong. And so now, you know, she's talking about her expertise, which is more in Sudan and some of those areas. And so she she's, takes a strong stand against female genital mutilation. She didn't used to, but now she's decided, I can't, I can't, I can't not stand against it, even if it's their culture. I can't do it. But then she addresses abuse. And she's like, well, you know, if it's, if it's particularly violent 
and bones are broken or skin is cut, we need to say that's wrong. But the jury's still out if it's just slapping someone around. Because we value their culture and that's a part of their culture. I'm like, no. No. God says, no. Because as Christians, we say there are transcendent values that go over every culture. And a man beating his wife or his children is wrong in any culture. It's wrong because God says it's wrong. Not because my Western culture says it's wrong, but because God says it's wrong. And that's where, you know, this is where her struggle is. Because if there's no overarching uh, uh, right or wrong that's been divinely commanded, then we're left to our own devices. And this is why I say Christianity is very rational. It lays it out. It says, this is how, this is how, this is how it's supposed to be. This is how you're supposed to live. Very rational. And God's word stands above our reasoning. And you know, Paul recognized that. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, if Christ is not raised from the dead, then eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. What is Paul saying? He's saying, if death is the end, no destiny then what's our, what, what, what is our, our, our basis for self-denial, for restraint, for compassion? He says, I, I, that's, he, I can't see it. He said, and Paul's trying to be very rational in this. He says it hinges on that. It hinges on the resurrection. So, Scripture never gives application without doctrine, and Scripture never gives doctrine without application. Because we're not given knowledge for knowledge's sake. And, and uh, many times, you know, you may, you may have bumped in, sometimes you can bump into somebody who knows a lot of the Bible, and they've become self-righteous and proud and condescending and condemning. And what are they doing? They're violating verse 1. See how great the love, this miraculous love God has for you. It's a miracle that you're saved. So if you're proud, or you look down on other people, or you mock people you don't agree with, or you're very harsh in your words, or a critical spirit, He's saying, you, know, you, know, you may know the word, but you're denying the power of it by your actions. Now, you may have met a person like that. They're easy to spot. When you bump into them, it's pretty easy to spot. The only person that has trouble spotting them is the person who is that person. Most disagreeable, harsh, and proud people do not realize they're that way. It's a very difficult thing to become self-aware of. So what the Bible says, it has to affect you. You can't take in truth and not allow it to change you. You have to be saying, how should I be different on the basis of this truth? I mean, we talk about that all the time. We talk about when we sing. How should I be different on the basis of what I'm singing? How should I be different because of these truths that I am now pronouncing by singing out loud or I'm thinking through quietly? Because we have to do that. What the Bible says, it has to affect you. Because it's very dangerous to take in truth and not allow it to purify you. It's very dangerous to know the Word and still live life the way you want to live it. To, be, to, to know what the Word of God says, but to use your, whatever, your money the way you want to do it, your sexuality the way you want to use it, your time the way you want to use it. It can be any number of things, but to live your life in a way that you know violates God's commands, that's a dangerous place to be. Because what you're doing is you're saying, I know I'm a Christian, but I, and I know this is wrong, but I have to have it. I have to do it. 
And so you violate his law, you violate his majesty, you violate his honor, but also based on verse one, you insult the goodness of God. You're saying, if I obey him, I will not be satisfied. He will not come through for me. He will not give me what I want. And so, scripturally, the way to become pure is not simply, I will be better. I will read my Bible. I will make myself accountable. I will try harder. I will do more. I will give more. Okay, those are a start. But the heart of it, the heart of it is this. And and I, I think the problem with those things is, you know, it's like, it's that problem of you say, I'm going to start reading my Bible every day. I'm going to take you know, five minutes, ten minutes, whatever it is. I'm going to take some time to read my Bible every day. And about the eighth or ninth day you go, whoa, I'm really doing good. I'm getting this Christian thing down pretty well. I'm awesome. What happens? What happens is you make the things like that, they become your hope. They become your meaning. They become what you live for. So then you miss a day or two, and you're like, oh, crap, I hate that, that I did that, I'm such a dope. I hate. And, and so what happens? You, you start yo-yoing back and forth. Why? Because your hope is in that, whatever it is you're doing. That becomes what you live for. It's like in Luke chapter 8, Jesus comes walking on the water to the boat, and Peter says, Lord, is that you? And Jesus says it is, and he says, bid me come. Tell me to get out of this boat and come. And Jesus says, come, right? Now, have you ever thought, I mean, sometimes I like to take these, our problem is we know these stories, right? We know these stories, and so if, if you're ever reading it in your Bible, you go, oh, yeah, the walking on water story. I can just skip through that. I kind of, it gets out on the way big, oh, you know, the whole thing. You can act it out in three seconds, right? You can do that, Right? But you ever thought, Peter's at the edge of the boat. There's 12 of them in that boat. Peter's at the edge of the boat, and, and they're all seeing it. But Peter's the one that speaks up, right? And Peter's the one that gets out, and he climbs out of the boat, and it's like, kazam. He's looking at Jesus. <laughs> I'm walking on the water. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that thrill? Can you imagine that? He must have been on cloud nine, right? Just like, ha, 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 suckers, ha, ha. I mean, I'm sure Peter said that, right? I'm sure Peter said that. What up, fellas? And he's looking at it, and he's okay, this is awesome. Whoa, that's a big wave. (laughs) You see that wave? Because I'm looking at it. You know, and up, I'm up to my knees. You know, you see how that, because it's so human, that's what I would do. I'd be like, Jesus, this is awesome, that's a big wave. And now I'm distracted. I've taken my focus off of him. And what does Jesus say? Oh, Peter, he says, oh, you have little faith. And what are you saying? He's saying, Peter, you didn't focus on me. You didn't keep me at the center. That wave got bigger the more you looked at it. It's almost like Jesus saying, Peter, did you think I didn't know that wave was coming? I mean, I kind of like created this. So I knew that wave was coming. And so this is what we do. We focus on Jesus. We go, ah, this is awesome. And Jesus is going, you think that's a surprise to me? I knew all about it. Focus on me. Center on me. Purity. It's a cleansing process. 
the very key there is it's, it's a cleansing. He's a, it's, the word there's purifying. It's a process that happens. There's ups and downs. There's failures. There's falling in the water and getting pulled out. And there's big waves and there's all that stuff. It's a cleansing process. Purity is, oftentimes it was washing by immersion in something that was considered clean, in water that was considered clean. So you would allow that water to wash away ceremonially, to wash away the dirt that is on you. Scripture talks about the washing of the water of the word. Letting the word do that. There was also purification. The two things they would have thought of is they would have thought of that purification going into a, into a cistern where there was pure water and you'd come out so then you could enter into the temple. That was one. Second thing they would think about is the purification that comes from a refiner's fire. And that's when you purified gold or silver. You put it under immense heat. And, and, and what would happen? They, they would have a thing and it would be under immense heat and the, and the gold would be getting really hot. And the impurities, gold is heavy. So the impurities would rise to the top and they'd have this little thing and they'd skim. It was called the dross. I don't know why that's important, but I think it is. They, they'd skim the dross off and get it to the side and skim the dross off. And they knew that gold or silver was pure. What was the test? The test was the, purif- the purifier, the person in charge, he would look and he'd see his face. He'd see an exact replica of his face, like looking in a mirror. And he would go, it's pure. God says, I'm the purifier. And I'm removing things from you. Because one day, and this is where the ties in, we will be like him. Why? Because we'll see him face to face. It will be perfect. We'll see him face to face. So this is that understanding. He says this purification, what is this? This this idea of cleansing, of purifying. And then he says, purify him as he is pure. Now, little Greek lesson, two Greek words that can be used here. One is hagias which is holy, absolute purity at its core. That's not the word that's used here for Jesus. It says, as he is pure. The other is hagnos. See how they're connected. They're very similar. That is pure, but it has been established and maintained through trial and tribulation. Hagnos is never used of the Father. It is always hagios, because he is pure at his core. Hagnos is used of Jesus because he came to earth and he lived it. Through trials, through tribulation, through, through, through all these things that happened, that happened to you and me, and Jesus came out successfully. Jesus is hagnos. He is pure because of his human experience. He lived a life that we could not live. So, wrapping it up, how do we find the balance in this idea of purifying ourselves. Because on one hand, yes, it can be hard. Scripture uh, states that plainly. It It can be hard work. On the other hand, the power is from God. In this passage, the purifying power flows from verses one and two. Knowing that I am loved deeply, knowing my destiny, knowing what is coming. The power flows from that. The purifying flows from that. When you set your heart on the love of the Father and the love of Jesus, when you set your heart on your destiny, when you look at it, when you reflect on it, when you focus on it, then God's power works. Psalm 34, 80 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. He uses that word for taste. It's a word we we would say sometimes, savor. What does it mean to savor? If you put something in your mouth, you savor it. What happens is you turn it over. You taste you linger on that taste because it's so good. 
Taste and see that the Lord is good. God says, savor me. When the love of God becomes more and more real in your life as you think through his love for you, then a temptation will seem less attractive because of his love for you. You will have the power to resist because you have found something far greater than what is offered in a temptation. You will begin to be able to say, how can I find that attractive when I have everything that I want and need? Oftentimes I, I related the idea, and, and no illustration is foolproof, they all have problems, but the idea of a fan, you know, a fan was created for a particular thing, and it excels at that particular thing if it's worked right. It blows air. But there's one thing it needs, power. It needs electricity. You, you can turn that fan on and off all day, and if there's no power, nothing will happen. You give it the power it needs, and it starts to work, and it works. In the sense of it's working, it generates heat. It works through that concept of friction so that it is working hard because the power's there. And unfortunately, many times in our lives, we get our, take, take our sights off of Jesus and it's like the power has been unplugged. And it's not like the whole world comes to a screeching halt. The fan still goes for a little bit. It just starts slowing down. Have you ever had a time in your life where you stopped and you said, how did I get here? How did I get to this point? This is terrible. How did I get? I, I never wanted this. So how did I get here? Here's how you got there. You unplugged. But the fan didn't totally stop. And so you kept going. But slowly off and slowly off, and it wound down and it slowed down until suddenly it doesn't work. And you go, how did I get here? It's a process. It is a process that leads to becoming like Jesus Christ, and it is a process that leads away from him. And the key then is tapping into the power. John gives us this multiple times in this book, but in this instance, is verse 1 and 2. See, see the great love the Father has for you. And then he says, we are assured. This is our destiny. We will be like him. We will be like him one day. And he says, now live that, because that's where the power is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that something written 2,000 years ago can apply to our lives today, right here and right now, and it's because you are in it. And it applies to us in this culture, and it applies to people in every culture in the whole world. And so, Father, help us to learn to yield to you and allow you to work. Help us to tap into this power that you freely give as we focus on you 